Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Sarah Campbell is a young Ontario woman who's battling thyroid cancer, and she's engaged to a British man, Jacob Taylor. They were to be married in June, but... uh, Jacob is not allowed into Canada under the one of the 23 exemptions for entering Canada during the pandemic. Sarah can't travel because she's dealing with cancer and treatment. And uh, she's also contacted Prime Minister Trudeau, federal ministers, requesting an exemption on compassionate grounds for Jacob to be allowed to join her in this country. And Federal Minister Blair was contacted by John Nater, who's the CPC, Conservative Party MP, representing uh, Sarah's constituency. And Mr. Blair, within hours, according to the news story, replied that he was not going to grant an exemption for Jacob to join his fiancée in Canada. Sarah Campbell joins us from Stratford, Ontario. Jacob Taylor is in the UK. How are you, Sarah? Well, that's uh, that's a complicated question. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. But I, I hope that we can. I hope we can effectively get yours and Jacob's story out to Canadians and and get people to be engaged, involved, and and supporting mm-hmm. you. And I know that there are many people across this country who are facing similar, not identical, but similar situations where they can't bring their loved ones into Canada either. Absolutely, yeah. Jacob joins us from the UK. Hi, Jacob. How are you, sir? Hi. Uh, Like Sarah says, it's a very difficult question to answer. Um, I think sort of a feeling of, uh, I don't know, disappointment, uh, constantly let down by the administration and that's the uh, the british and the canadian governments right well the british government haven't uh i mean in terms of borders the british government hasn't really um had too many issues with the borders um like i say if sarah had uh, not had the cancer she could have quite easily come over here and we would be uh, married by now um of course you can criticize how the british government is handling the the rest of the COVID outbreak in the UK. But uh, on the border issue, uh, I think they've been fairly sensible. Okay. I know you've uh, called the British High Commission in this country and the the Canadian High Commission, the equivalency in the United Kingdom, and the CPSA, the Border Services Agency. Sarah, why don't you tell us your story, please, in your words? Of course. So... You know, we uh, we had planned to get married in in June um, after getting engaged uh, at Pearson Airport. Actually, Jacob came to visit me in January of this year, and he couldn't wait. He just dropped down on one knee right in the airport and asked me to marry him. Um, but we, yeah, so we had planned to get married in June. Uh, however. Then, you know, March came and the borders closed and for good reason. You know, I, I don't think any of us really 
were going to argue that the borders needed to be closed. Uh, however, you know, it got around to kind of April and then May, and we weren't receiving any word about possible exemptions um, to be added into into the uh, ordering council. And so I, I actually was going to go to the UK. I, I had planned on moving there after we had gotten married anyways. But it was right around that time that I found a lump on the side of my neck. And it didn't go away. And so I talked to my doctor about it. I went for some tests, was referred to an ENT. The long and the short of it was that I got uh, a, an excisional biopsy done. I had to go through that procedure all alone. It was horrible. Um, and, you know, she initially told me it'll be two to three weeks for results. Uh, I got a call one week later. And usually when they call you after just a week, it's not good news. And that was the case for me. She, you know, she told me on the phone and I was on a video chat with Jacob at the time, actually, when I got the phone call and she said, you know, unfortunately it is thyroid cancer. Um, and, you know, I'd already kind of been advocating with the government a little bit just to, to see where the government was at in terms of exemptions. On June 8th, they provided a border exemption for spouses and common law partners of Canadian citizens. However, uh, you know, Jacob and I don't meet the qualifications for common law um, because of our religious beliefs. And so we were left out of that exemption. So, I, I you know, I kind of been pushing a little bit, but... When I got this cancer diagnosis, I just, I kicked it into high gear. You know, I emailed everyone. We called everyone, you know, and we, we really didn't hear anything back from, from government officials. And I started handwriting letters, actually. Um, I, uh, I, I was frustrated by the lack of response or, you know, when I did get the odd response, it was kind of a copy-pasted, standardized response from a government official um, just kind of saying, you don't qualify for an exemption. We're sorry, but that's them's the rules. Um, and, you know, it's actually written on the Government of Canada website that there are no compassionate exemptions. Um, and that is the case even to this day. So I, I began writing letters, handwriting letters to government officials after getting frustrated with emails, uh, thinking that, Surely, once the government saw how much effort I was going to, you know, handwriting letters every single day, that, you know, I would get a response. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that was not the case at all. And uh, at this point in time, um, today I mailed my 110th handwritten letter, uh, and I have received all of one one response um, out of those 110 letters, and again, it was a standard. Uh, it was a standard kind of copy-pasted response that just restated the border rules. So I've been very, very disappointed um, and frustrated with the lack of compassion from our government, and that kind of brings us up to today. <laughs> You know, I, I was reading a, a story in the National Post about you as well, and I'm just going to quote from uh, two lines or three lines from the story. In the House of Commons, her, that would be you, her MP John Nader, asked for an exemption for her fiancé to come to Canada from Minister of Public Safety Bill Blair. Blair responded to Nader with a rejection email a few hours after the request was made. 
Um, Blair said Taylor could not come in because he did not qualify for one of the 23 exemptions outlined in government policy. So policy supersedes humanity. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that seems to be the case here. Um, my MP, John Nader, you know, he's done an amazing job advocating for me. And he's certainly not the only MP um, uh, that has stood up for families like, you know, Jacob and I, who we just don't qualify for common law or, you know, we're not married yet. And, you know, the government won't let him into the country so that we can be married. But, you know, he's not allowed into the country because we're not married. So we're Sarah, in an awkward just, position here. You know, just before I take a break, and then mm-hmm. we're going to come back and talk more with you and with Jacob as well. Mm-hmm. How important is it to you? that Jacob be by your side? It sounds like a redundant question, but given the fact that you've only had one response for the 110 letters that you've sent, maybe, just maybe, some of these people who have the power with a stroke of a pen to accept Jacob to come to Canada and be with you, how significantly important is it to you, I'm sorry to ask this question, to have Jacob by your side? That's okay. I mean, it it would mean everything. Sorry. Um, nobody wants to go through cancer, but to have to go through it without my fiance by my side has been heartbreaking. It would mean everything in the world to have okay. him with me. Jacob, but as you listen to Sarah, and I can only imagine the conversations you've had together, but when you listen to Sarah and, and you hear her uh, explain how truly important it is for her to have you by her side, that must just tear you apart. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's one of those things that sort of just leaves you speechless. I mean, it's completely heartbreaking. I mean, I, from here in the UK, there's very little that, that I can do. And I think when you're a, a guy in a, in a relationship, you want, and your partner is hurting, you want to do something about it. You want to try to fix it. Um, but there's very, there's literally nothing I can do, and it's absolutely um, heartbreaking. Why don't you talk to each other? Hi, Jacob. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. <laughs> I love you. I love you too. <laughs> we actually haven't talked yet on the phone today, so this is the first time I'm hearing his voice today. <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually something that I that I'd say. Like, I think I don't think I, I don't have a good day if I don't. Uh, if we don't call. So I guess it's, it's quite good that we get to do it on the, on the radio show. Yeah. <laughs> so we're all eavesdropping. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to hear your voices and hear the happiness. And I knew what was going to happen. The happiness instantly when you're speaking with each other. And if that doesn't melt the obstinate behavior of some of the people who denied you entry into this country, Jacob, then I don't know what will. Is there any, has anybody given you any sense of any hope that you might be able to come into Canada? Anyone? Anyone? Uh, uh. <laughs> with, a, with an official ability to, to make it, make it happen. Well, uh, there's a, there's a few government ministers who have the power to make exemptions. Uh, the Minister of Health, the Minister of Public Safety, the Minister of Immigration, uh, Mr. Trudeau himself as well. Uh, but we have not obviously gotten an exemption from any one of them. All right. Tell us, tell us about your health, Sarah. How are you now? 
Well, I so I had to go through a major surgery on August 5th. I had a full thyroidectomy, a left, right, and central neck dissection as well. So I've got a massive uh, scar right across my neck, if you can uh, picture that. Um, recovery from that was incredibly difficult, uh, especially without Jacob. And now I am just waiting for the next step of my treatment, which is uh, it's called a radioactive iodine. It's a form of radiation. So I'm waiting for that. That'll come around in November. So I can't leave Canada um, until a few weeks after that. So the earliest I can get out of here is December. Um, so I, I, I'm really hoping that Jacob is able to come and be with me before I have to go through the next phase of treatment. Yeah. Oh, I hope so, too. I really hope so, too. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And I've been reading emails from people who are facing similar situations where they're just not allowed to be together because they don't fit into one of the 23 categories that the government has put uh, has put together. Uh, you also tweeted uh, out to me and sent me an email, uh, Sarah, about faces of advocacy on social media, and I've tweeted out the, uh, the the link, the Twitter link to the group. But that's what it's all about, right? This this is the group of people who are facing similar situations to yours and Jacob. Absolutely. So our group actually just hit over seven thousand members on Facebook, um, and this is one way that you know, if anyone is listening and thinking you know, how can I help? What can I do? I really strongly would say um, if you could follow our group, it's called Faces of Advocacy. And it's a group of people, normal Canadian citizens who are just, you know, we don't want the borders to open, keep them shut, but we just want to be together. So if you could follow Faces of Advocacy, you know, we're on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, you know, all of the social media. Um, and as well, you know, if people want to help, I really just encourage them to, to write and phone their local MP, to write to some of the government officials that I mentioned a minute ago, you know, the Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, the Minister of Immigration, Marco Mendicino, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, Minister of Health, Patty Haiju. Um, all of those things would really be helpful for us. And, you know, our advocacy group, it's, it's very legitimate. It's very official. We have submitted an official parliamentary petition. Uh, it's been tabled. So, you know, we're not just kind of, uh, we're not just, uh, you know, we, I mean, we are normal. No, you're an amazing, you're an amazing young woman. And you deserve happiness, and you deserve to be together. And an email from Terry, why not just marry via Zoom, then your husband and wife, and you can travel? I don't know if that would work, but maybe it uh, Unfortunately, um, yeah, Jacob, you can explain that one. I only have oh, a, yeah. I'm sorry, Jacob, I only have about 10 or 15 seconds here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Zoom weddings aren't um, legal in Canada. You can't okay. get married online. Well. They don't recognize it. The president of the Public Health Agency of Canada has resigned as the agency find, faces many questions concerning its handling of Canada's pandemic surveillance system through cutbacks of the Global Health Intelligence Network and stewardship of the nation's PPE system or the supplies and more issues, more concerns. Michelle Rempel-Garner joins us. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for the time. And what do you make of this development? What's it say to you? Well, it just is a pr another proof point that the government does not have a handle on managing the pandemic. They haven't since the start. And, uh, you know, I thought it was really strange. The announcement was dumped out on a Friday afternoon. 
and which is typically like when you want to bury news. And it also, the statement also didn't really mention the government or the minister. It was very conspicuous in its absence. So I think that there's a lot more behind the scenes on what led to this resignation. That's something we'll certainly be digging into as we go into the speech from the throne this week. Now, I don't doubt what the uh, now former president says, but I found it very unusual that she would say it was time to, quote, take a break and, quote, step aside so someone else can step up. Uh, This is a time when people need continuance and and really strong leadership. And and we also are looking at this uh, this issue uh, about the uh, GPHIN network, which is tasked with uh, finding and identifying and alerting to international health threats. And they were, were they not, uh, was their mandate not changed in 2018 from an international mandate to a national? That's correct. So the system that could have warned us about this uh, was actually dismantled by the Liberal government. And then the health minister tried to attempt to pin it on the public service. You know, typically when somebody like the president of public service resigns and you get to that level of your career in the public service, you know, this is just my conjecture, but, you know, I have to wonder if she felt like she wasn't being listened to. And certainly the government has made a lot of flip-flops on, uh, you know, basic things like closing the borders, masks that could have saved Canadians' lives. And uh, this is just, you know, at a time when the... The Liberal government are asking Canadians to trust them with the next steps of a plan in the t- pandemic, which they don't have. It just, it, it just, there's, there's nothing to trust, right? So, you know, this week for the speech from the throne, uh, you can expect to hear from me uh, and and other members of the party some some alternative visions on how we can move forward and get us out of this, this you know, semi quagmire of just poor management that has been demonstrated by the Trudeau Liberals. You know, when I look at what happened to Jody Wilson-Raybould and to uh, uh, Jane Philpott, the, uh, the former um, um, health minister, it, it, when they displeased Mr. Trudeau, I can't help but ask, and I'm just I'm just conjecture, whether the uh, the former president now of PHAC was pushed. Well, I think that there's a lot more to the story. I'll certainly be digging into that, but Justin Trudeau does not like strong women. Unfortunately, he's going to have to deal with me this week. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yes, and, and just um, on your previous segment there, Sarah Campbell, our party is also trying to push for a change in the definition of spouse so that people like her can be reunited safely. There's no reason why the government can't do this, and uh, certainly that's just a heart-wrenching story that is it's beyond the pale that the government hasn't addressed this yet. You know, when, when you listen to Sarah explain what she's gone through, just battling this cancer, the major surgery she's gone through, the chemo she's getting, and, and what lies ahead, and her fiancé is across the ocean, and she needs him by her side, and Bill Blair sends, uh, and he, he, he writes within minutes, according to the news story, a reply to Sarah's MP, member of your caucus, uh, saying, no, he's not going to do anything to, to change the reality. Yeah. That just, to me, is just, that's just cruel. It's cruel, and, you know, as, uh, without getting into family specifics, as somebody who is intimately aware of the um, hardships and heartache uh, of being separated by uh, these border closures, everybody yeah. wants to do their part, but right. we need a better plan. I mean, why can't why isn't the government looking at rapid testing? Yeah. Why aren't they looking at home testing? Let's, 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 you, and I, let's you and I talk... Passion. 
Michelle, let's you and I talk again, the time goddess, but maybe we can talk next weekend if you're for that time. I would love that, but we'll okay. talk about. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Dipsos uh, polled Canadians for Global News and found that 75% of us support another COVID-19 shutdown if a second wave of the virus actually hits. Sean, thanks very much for the time. And can you flesh that out for us a little bit? That's a big number, 75%. How does it, how does it break down? Yeah, well, I mean, three quarters of Canadians believe that a second wave is 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 coming, and you know, some might argue this municipality of Ottawa, for example, that is that is already here. So, um, in light of that, uh, three quarters uh, support shutting down most businesses uh, if there's a second wave, much like we did in in March, and. It's, uh, it's one of those things where a majority of Canadians in every demographic group that we uh, studied uh, support uh, a lockdown. I think it's because they saw that it was quite effective uh, in, in uh, stopping the spread and bending the curve back in March and, and April, even if it was uh, you know, fairly disastrous for the economy. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's another issue, and it's a huge issue. We have a $340 billion deficit, trillion-dollar debt. Uh, downgraded uh, borrowing. Uh, d- d- does the economy come into people's consideration at all when when the lockdown is brought up, or a, oh, or another lockdown? Uh, yeah, you know, is well, brought up. I think that Canadians would want to avoid the three million job losses that occurred as a result of the of the lockdown, and uh, I suspect that they're hoping that our political masters have. Um, taken the opportunity over the summer to to prepare and maybe be a little bit more uh, precise uh, rather than blunt with the instruments they're using to to combat uh, COVID-19. So targeted, uh, maybe regional-based shutdowns, certain sectors, certain industries, rather than what happened in March, which was uh, almost a, you know, kind of a, a carte blanche, uh, uh, broad-scale shutdown of, of everything everywhere. Yeah. And th- this poll was really about how Canadians would feel about another shutdown, another lockdown, if the, if the, the dreaded second wave hits. It wasn't, didn't extend much uh, beyond that basic parameter. But uh, from what I understand here, and I'm looking at the Global News story, there were, however, the story reads, some differences across the country when it comes to how well Canadians think their governments are prepared for a p- potential second wave. Yes. Yeah, so overall, uh, 70% of Canadians believe that their province is ready and prepared to deal with uh, with a second wave, which means that 3 in 10 Canadians, uh, and that's you know, nearly 10 million of us, uh, believe that we're, we're not prepared. Who is most likely to believe we're not prepared residents of prairie provinces saskatchewan manitoba alberta uh all with at least one in three residents believing their province isn't prepared and we're about three in ten in ontario quebec about a quarter in bc and only 16 percent in atlanta canada you know they've done a pretty good job uh keeping uh infection rates low uh and i think a lot of that has to do with the uh with the travel bubble that they've uh they've instituted out there so would it be uh, reasonably safe to say that the polling and the numbers and the responses reflect the experiences of Canadians in their specific regions? 
Oh, ab- absolutely. Uh, the the hardest hit regions, for example, uh, Ontario, uh, just you know, really by virtue of, it, of its size, among the most likely to believe that uh, schools, for example, have reopened uh, too too quickly. Uh, and those in uh, in Alberta as well, uh, British Columbia. Uh, so certainly. You know your own personal experience with with COVID nineteen in your own municipality uh, would would definitely inform your opinions here. Now, what about Canadians' concerns about uh, contracting the virus themselves? How worried are people? Yeah, and it really, I think that's the, the the underlying sentiment or attitude here that in, informs opinions. And what we're finding here is that uh, the vast majority uh, of, of Canadians, two thirds of Canadians, uh, are personally concerned about contracting COVID nineteen themselves. So this isn't you know concern for my neighbor or for, for an elderly parent or uh, you know for for other people. You know because a lot of times when we when we're looking at issues, we say, well, it happens to other people, but not me. Um, in this case, we've got two thirds of Canadians say that they're personally concerned about contracting uh, COVID nineteen, and I think that is uh, part of the reason why we're seeing such strong support for uh, for a lockdown if a second wave uh, does occur. Sean, uh, the other issue that I really find interesting is uh, the question that you asked about mandatory vaccination and whether or not there is support for that kind of move. And uh, well, tell us what the result is. Yeah, so we still have a majority of Canadians at 63% uh, who believe that once available, vaccinations against COVID-19 should be mandatory. 63% uh, believe that, but that's down nine points since uh, July when we first asked the question. So, uh, you know, anytime you say something is mandatory in a, in a democracy, you know, especially, uh, a lot of people get their guard up. And I think there are still questions about, uh, you know, the distribution of, of the vaccine, uh, how often you would need to be vaccinated, uh, at, at what cost, and presumably in Canada it would be covered, but may- maybe not, and ultimately the efficacy of the vaccine uh, and, and whether whether or not we need to hit a certain threshold of the population uh, to, to receive that vaccine before we actually realize a, a, a widespread benefit. I think these are all questions that people have. Uh, no, no shortage of answers and opinions when it comes to COVID and the best way to move forward. Superhero movies, as you know, dominate pop culture today. Listen to this. They generated $2.8 billion in the United States alone in 2018. From the movie superheroes to real-life versions, through Peter Nowak's book, The Rise of the Real-Life Superheroes and the Fall of Everything Else. I got to tell you, this is a really interesting, entertaining, informative book. I don't get to read all the books because we I just don't have the time. But I read a fair bit of Peter's book, and he traveled across North America to meet the real-life and extraordinary individuals who were donning capes and masks and uh, undertaking larger-than-life good deeds in times of increasing pessimism and despair, like the Dark Guardian, who uses judo flips to take down drug dealers in the grimy area of Manhattan, or Canada's very own polar man shoveling snow from remote driveways in the far north and their citizen Tiger, a former paratrooper, wearing two Tiger masks, and who joins with 13 other real-life heroes to distribute sleeping bags to people who are homeless throughout the winter. Peter Nowak joins us, uh, author, former Globe and Mail writer, moved to China and New Zealand, Best Technology Reporter Award at the New Zealand Herald, and uh, the author of Humans 3.0, in addition to the rise of real-life superheroes. 
Peter, I really have to tell you, uh, when I first heard about your book, I thought, all right, so I'm going to read about comics here and comic book characters. And sure, comics are a significant part of the um, of the evolution of the book, but it is a tremendous read. It really is a great read. You've done a tremendous job. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, hugely. And, uh, you know, I actually even started to think about the fact, when I was a kid growing up in England, there was like a comic newspaper. There was a, it was like a broadsheet. And it was called Topper. And I haven't thought about Topper for decades. And I actually started started thinking about some of the comics I followed in Topper, so you you got me hooked. So let's let's get to this. How did the world become fixated on superheroes? Billions of dollars in movies just in the US in two thousand eighteen. Is today's superhero appearance an extension of the comic books of the fifties and the sixties? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh it's been a very slow build. Um, you know, there's a good chunk of the book devoted to Basically, uh, you know, how this happened. Uh, it started in the 1930s, the late 1930s in New York City in the Bronx, basically from a bunch of Jewish immigrants that, uh, you know, couldn't, they couldn't, uh, there was rampant anti Semitism at the time. They couldn't find employment anywhere else. So what they did was they basically created their own medium, which was comic books. And, uh, you know, the superheroes there were, were kind of like, um, uh, like revenge fantasies almost, or they, they created these characters that were, Everything they weren't. They were Superman was of course the first. He was super strong and he could fly and he was handsome. He got the girl and all that stuff. So um, you know they did. That's how they sort of built built these characters. They were really uh, you know they, it was kid stuff to start with. Uh, but what was really important about these characters when they first started, I think, was that they were really progressive. They were really you know for change. Superman at first was you know um, a champion of the oppressed and and that sort of thing and. Uh, kind of funny because superheroes are now celebrating 80 years today is actually batman day if you believe it or not oh, no kidding. <laughs> and uh over the years over the decades they've kind of become uh almost this conservative thing where they're they're uh you know in in some ways almost tools of the state or, or super law enforcers uh so that's kind of where where we are and that's you know it's been a slow build of superheroes building over decades and there's a bit of a technology technological story here too because you know, they, they dominated movie screens once, they started to dominate movie screens once the technology allowed these fantastical stories to be really told on, on a screen. Yeah, I mean, it's just really uh, so popular. I look at again at that number, $2.8 billion, just in the United States alone in 2018, uh, generated from superhero movies. You started to investigate the... Uh, I don't know what we call them, local superheroes, the everyday superhero, in your hometown, which is Toronto. So how did that begin, and how easy is it to find them? <laughs> uh, not that easy, actually. There's uh, there, there's quite a few of them out there, but they're, they keep uh, they, they sort of keep a low profile. They're a little bit distrustful of, of the media. The media tends to treat them as, uh, if not sensationally, then sometimes they treat them as a joke and that kind of... Uh, you know, so they don't really give it a good academic look or a good serious look, which I, I kind of uh, I tried to do in this book. But how I discovered them was, you know, it, it goes back to how where all those great ideas that we have come from. You know, those moments of of idle thought. You know, in, in this particular instance, I was I couldn't get to sleep one night, and I was lying there thinking, I, I'm a giant nerd, and and like you, I grew up with comic books, so I was lying there thinking, how come nobody's tried to be a real world Batman? You know, <laughs> Yeah. He doesn't have superpowers. He's not from another planet. He's he's kind of this achievable superhero, right? 
so I started looking around online and discovered, wow, there's actually quite a few of these people, maybe not to the same extent, but there's a lot of these people out there trying to be real-life superheroes, and that, that got me down this rabbit hole. And, uh, yeah, it kind of started locally. I, I found a few of them in Ontario, and, uh, you know, when I, when I spoke with them, they, they saw that I wasn't, you know, <laughs> trying to make fun of them or, or, or mock them or whatever. They, thought, they saw that I was uh, very interested in taking this as a, serious, as a serious subject and trying to figure out what, why this is actually happening. Why are there so many of these people? And there's at least a couple hundred um, operating at any given time. Uh, what, what is, you know, is there a common message that they're saying? And that, that's where the second half of the title, I think, comes in, which is the, the fall of everything else. I think they do collectively have something very uh, strong to say about how uh, there's this declining trust in public institutions and, and a growing sense of we need to stand up and do things for ourselves. And that, that's why this is happening. Also combined with the fact that, you know, uh, comic books are, uh, they're part of this, if you look at any sort of culture, whether it's music, whether it's sports, uh, these are all things that we consume as entertainment, but some small portion of the population inevitably participates in them as well. And that's where we're at with comic books and superheroes. Yeah. Is that it is this massive uh, con- consumption uh, entertainment, but some small portion of people are actually deciding, well, I, I kind of want to do this too. So, so tell us, please. Uh, I mean, it could be the person next door. Right? Um, we may not even know, or we may not have an inkling. But what is the range of their activities? And I, I have to tell you, the the character Phoenix Jones got my uh, got my attention. He dresses the part, but he got himself into serious trouble at the same time. But wh- what do they do? Right. So, they, I think they generally break down into one of two types of activities. And in, in most cases, they, those two activities kind of blend, so they do both. So on the one hand, you have what's sort of called like the crime patrol. So these are the types that will... Um, I, I found that actually a lot of ex-military types graduate to this sort of thing, and they'll wear some sort of body armor. And this is more, more the case in the United States. Uh, and they'll wear their costumes. They create their own personas and their own characters. And they'll patrol like the... Uh, you know, so the downtown districts of cities at night. I uh, usually where a lot of the bars are. One of the teams I hung out with was the Extreme Justice League in San Diego, and uh, they do this almost every weekend. And I watched them, you know, break up fights, prevent fights. They carried drunken tourists back to their hotel rooms, and uh, I did talk to the police there, and they were uh, actually quite happy that they were out there doing this. The, the police force there is pretty understaffed. Um, so that's on the one hand. On the sec- on the other hand, you have uh, the types who are they t- they try to avoid that that sort of dangerous side of it and uh, focus more on uh, helping homeless people. So they'll take uh, you know carts full of supplies, sleeping bags, socks, uh, granola bars, and so on, and uh, and go around cities and give those out to homeless people. And uh, that was actually really uh, great to watch too because this is something that. The average person just never would, it would never enter the mind of the average person, I think. This would be Citizen Tiger, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and and when you see the interactions between, I mean, some of them are, are, some homeless people will see these guys coming up to them and say, what the hell's going on here? (laughs) But as soon as they get past that, they start having conversations. And and that's the one great thing, I think, about these real-life superheroes is that uh, they, they, one of their sort of stated missions is to treat uh, the people that they deal with as human beings, which is something that really homeless people just don't get. 
uh, yeah. a lot of, and that was really amazing to see. I was I was pretty taken aback by that. Yeah. So uh, those are the two main activities, and like I said, um, some of them do a blend of the, the two. Tell us, please, about some of the individuals who stand out to you, and some of them wear costumes while they're out there, right? Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, there was quite a few memorable characters. Obviously, uh, it's I think it's impossible to do uh, to get into this subject without seeing, without being uh, you know sort of taken aback by some of these types. Uh, one guy that really stood out for me was Master Legend in Orlando, Florida. Uh, he's quite well known, actually. He uh, Amazon Prime uh, just about did a TV show based on his life. Uh, they did a pilot episode, which I saw, and uh, it was quite good. But it never went to a series, unfortunately. But he's um, so he's in Orlando, and he's not terribly not liked by the other uh, real life superheroes in this whole community because he they say he tells tall tales, and you know I kind of let I let readers be the judge of his tall tales. You know he's he told me that he had a, this horrible upbringing where his father was a member of the clan and his mother was a Satan worshiper, and they made him fight in these children fight clubs. And uh, he also says that he's got superpowers that he was born with them. So. Uh, He's really, you know, <laughs> one of these types that's hard to believe. But at the same time, he's been around for a long time, and his good deeds are fairly well documented. So he's he, he has been out there and helped people. So I guess that's kind of what matters, I think. Uh, you know, uh, here in Canada, we've got a couple. Um, like I said, in Ontario, we've got the, the team. They call themselves the Trillium Guard. Uh, they're kind of from all over the place. They're from Windsor. They're from Oshawa. And they get together uh, in in Toronto every couple every couple of months, and they they do hand out these uh, supplies to homeless people. These are uh, there's the, the, some of their members are they go by the names like Canadian Justice, uh, Urban Knights, an interesting guy. He wears like full medieval knight armor, uh, which is <laughs> you see him coming from a mile away. <laughs> or, or hear him right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. So lots of colorful characters. You mentioned a couple of them: Polar Man, you know, the yeah. shoveling the snow. Yeah. Uh, Phoenix Jones out in Seattle. Uh, he's not quite active these days, I don't think, but he was, uh, he was one of the, you know, if you really, what I said earlier about uh, wondering why there isn't a real world Batman, he's probably the closest that you could, uh, you could get to that. He, he was wearing, you know, sort of like the black rubber armor and he's, uh, he's a skilled mixed martial arts fighter. So he was going out there with his team, which was the Rain City superhero movement. There was quite a few of them. Uh, but as you said, he got in trouble. He went to court. Uh, the, the police brought him in for allegedly running into a whole group of people and just pepper spraying everybody. So, oh, <laughs> um, yeah, they, you know, some some of them have good relations with police. Some of them don't. Yeah. So somewhere tonight, or many places tonight, these real life superheroes are going to be out there doing their thing, and in many cases, they'll be doing good things. That's amazing. It really is a, it's a, it's a, you know, I keep saying this, it's a really good lead. I, I wasn't ready for it, and I'm so glad that I uh, was aware of it, and it just goes right back to the, to our introduction to comics as kids. Peter, thank you so much for the time. Great talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, all the best. Peter Nowak, and uh, again, the book is The Rise of the Real Life Superheroes and the Fall of Everything Else. It's really an interesting concept when you think about you know, how many of us really do things that affect someone else and do so selflessly? Um, you know, somebody, people who get together to provide sleeping blankets uh, or, or bags, sleeping bags and blankets for the homeless or go and shovel driveways or intercede and stop fights. It's, I'm not suggesting you go out and do all these things, but people are out there doing it.
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.